Hold on to your butts. Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Reviewed Podcast, a bonus episode I am entitling Reviewed Film School. I am Ivan Kander and today I am joined by a very special guest, a uh, the cinephile, the director, the artiste, uh, one Shahir Dowd, uh, joining me via Skype from Brooklyn, New York. Say he- hello, Shahir. Excuse me. Uh, hello, Shahir. Um, there we thanks, <laughs> thanks for that lovely introduction. You'll, uh, you, you, you know, funny thing is, Ivan, you and I haven't actually met in person, so you won't know what it's like to see a brown person blush like I just did. Um, <laughs> there you go. Um, no, I mean, it's, uh, well, I mean, it's, this is really weird, but I feel like I talk to people every day that I've never met in real life or have only <laughs> met once or twice, and I feel like I'm closer with them than a lot of other people that I see every day. So, um, you know, there you go. And likewise, because um, we, we have mutual podcasts that we both listen to respectively, so I think, I, I feel like I know you very well, even though, uh, like I say, we've never met. Exactly. And uh, Shahir was on, um, Shahir um, has a podcast called The Only Podcast About Movies, which is ironic because we're talking about movies on this podcast, <laughs> but we're not going to get into that, um, which is an excellent show that I highly suggest you subscribe to. And you can check out his work at com. correct? That's correct. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and um, so what are we doing on this bonus episode? So what I wanted to do for quite some time on this podcast is kind of revisit a syllabus of movies that you would watch in film school, mainly because I never went to film school and uh, there are an entire laundry list of movies that I have been pretending to have seen my entire life but never have actually gotten around to seeing. Um, so I'm trying to remedy that on this podcast and I'm going to bring in someone more knowledgeable than myself, such as Shahir, to kind of talk through the movie with me, why it's influential, why it's important, and um, whether or not kind of the viewing experience works beyond an academic level. Um, And on today's episode, we are going to be talking about Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, a film that came out in 1960. It was part of the French New Wave movement, and I am just going to read the IMDb plot synopsis. A small-time thief steals a car and impulsively murders a motorcycle policeman wanted by the authorities. He reunites with a hip American journalism student and attempts to persuade her to run away with him to Italy. So that is the plot synopsis. And Shahir, let me tell you, when I um, I actually rented this through Netflix to watch it, and when I got the DVD sleeve, I'm like, wow, this is going to be a really intense thriller based oh, on right. that plot description. Because like even the the Netflix DVD sleeve was like, in uh, you know, a, a noir thriller that takes place in France about a guy on the run and like all right. this kind of stuff. So. Um, not exactly what I got when actually watching the movie, um, but um, I guess before I get into that, I kind of want to talk about your experience with Breathless. I know you went to film school. Did you go to NYU? I can't remember. No, you, I went to... You went to New Zealand, right? It was yeah, Zealand. I was in New Zealand, but I also managed to uh, go to uh, UC Irvine for a year um, uh, in California as an exchange student um, as part of film school there. But I, I, I sort of have an unusual background, which is that I uh, was in film school concurrently as uh, I was doing a degree in business studies. Um, and then I ended up TAing in uh, the film school that I was at in New Zealand um, and ended up, uh, there was a sort of weird transition that happened between senior lecturers and they ended up giving a course to uh, two or three of us uh, assist, uh, tutors to essentially take over. So I ended up teaching at film school as well. Um, and Look I have a lot you. of... Yeah, I have a, I have a, I have a few thoughts about film school before we even get into the movie itself and, and, and in the way that 
the function of film school and the way that it prescribes films such as Breathless um, for a student. Now, you, you said you didn't go to film school, but No, you're... no, I was an English major in college. And um, I think the word you use, prescribed, is very interesting because I almost feel like a lot of people view these movies as medicine, like they have to take it uh, yeah. in order to become like a great filmmaker, Like, but they don't necessarily... Um, like love the experience of watching a lot of them. And a good example of that, and I don't mean to uh, uh, digress too far, but like I remember having to watch or not having to watch. I remember taking like a film class in high school and we had to actually watch part portions of DW Griffith's um, uh, A Birth of a Nation. Right. And um, like, I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, yeah, I get, I understand why it's important that like this, person invented these techniques but we do these techniques all the time now so why do i have to watch this movie you know so um so i don't know if you have any well i mean i i think you know film school for me divides into two categories and and often more than not never the twain shall meet um which is an interesting phenomenon um but the two categories are film schools tend to do technical college which is that they introduce you the equipment they introduce you to like the the actual practice of making films Mm -hmm. and then the other side of it is uh is academic film theory uh where you are introduced to um you know, films such as Breathless, you read a lot of uh, literature around the film and, you know, and that I, I find that very rarely do the two things kind of coalesce together. I, have, I often find in the film schools that I've taught in or places I've given lectures or work that I've reviewed from film schools, they're either very technically uh, apt or they're very well versed in film history, but not very technically well produced. And, huh. and but my theory on film school is um, I personally believe, in, and this might only apply to me as a practitioner, and it might only apply to a few people, but I, I tend to think that the, the technical practice of filmmaking is fairly straightforward and easy, and it's, and it's a, basically an, it's a subset of your understanding of the cinematic language and film grammar. And so to me... Um, being exp- what's more valuable is being exposed to films like at a at a very at the actual prime age of films like Breathless. I agree with you that that uh, they some oftentimes they can feel prescribed because you know not no one goes very few people go to film school having been well versed in Godard or Fellini or you know whoever. They, they tend to watch those, they watch the films that are easily accessible to them as a young person, which right, tends right, to be right. films that you watch in the movie theater. Um, but I think, personally, even if you there isn't pleasure to be derived from watching Breathless, and I, I, I'm going to get into that because I actually do love this film, um, I think there is something to being exposed to it at the right age where it kind of becomes part of your understanding of the vocabulary of cinema, just in the same way uh, if a person was, you know, if you're doing an English literature degree and you read an old man at the sea, uh, in the sea, uh, the Hemingway novel, uh, at the right time in your life that even if you don't love that novel, it'll become part of your understanding of the fabric of English literature. Yeah. And I had a, I had a Latin teacher, um, and also a bunch of Shakespeare teachers in college. And it's like this whole idea that understanding the illusions of the works is incredibly important for understanding other works. And yeah. it's almost like you have to know where things came from originally in order to fully comprehend later stuff. So, um, you know, I think that's a really astute point uh, about kind of building a foundation of knowledge and that, uh, you know, kind of goes, you know, without saying, but going back to your two points of film school is this idea that, um, 
Like the idea that you can learn how to make a movie relatively easily in the sense that you're going to be able to figure out how to turn on a camera and do all that kind of stuff just by kind of like learning on the job almost, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, exactly. like th- that kind of stuff. Uh, you don't even have to go to school for that kind of thing. Like it, it's just, someone has to show you how to do it and you can do it. It's a very much a hands-on practice, but yeah. I do agree that there is a fundamental knowledge that's important to, you know, it, if you claim that you're a, you know, a fan of movies, you kind of have to do your homework in a certain sense. And uh, I, yeah, I uh, agree. Although, although the thing is, um, you know the history of cinema is rich and broad and and deep deeper than any human being could could ever consume in one lifetime i you know i truly believe so so the thing is if you're yes i think most film students are well versed in godard and the french new wave and and you know um movements such as that but but that doesn't mean if you haven't been exposed to that that you don't know anything about cinema. Like you, no, that's true. And it's, it's very pretentious to come off and say, "Oh, you don't know anything unless you've watched, you know, you know, a million black and white movies and all that kind of stuff." So, yeah, I, mean, I agree. I don't, I don't subscribe to that either. I guess my question, let's kind of back up a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of briefly, in two sentences, explain the French New Wave movement and explain why it's, you know, why it was so different? At the time, which is like the 1960s, uh, leading into the new Hollywood of the 1970s. Well, before I, I mean, there's a lot of literature on this um, <laughs> <laughs> that will explain it far better than I will. But but uh, the basic tenet of the French New Wave is a rejection of the classical film editing and film construction as we know it uh, as prescribed predominantly by the Hollywood studio system for something a little bit more organic a little bit more honest a little bit more um, intimate uh, now this this movement the French New Wave if you wanted to find a contemporary version of this as well look no further than the Dogma 95 yeah that's what I was going to say that's Lars Van, Von Trier and all those people right yeah yeah, yeah. Thomas uh, not, not Thomas Winterbottom but uh, I forget the director's name but yeah there was a you know the Dogma 95 movement is is a contemporary and analogy but you know you have to go back and so so i mean fundamentally i would say if it was a two-sentence thing filmmakers breaking the rules in response to hot the hollywood System. mode of yeah mode of filmmaking in, in like in like this kind of like I, I know you've been on i mean you've directed many movies and like this idea of like how uh the formality of the process can you know kind of somehow hurt the work like this your actor has to stand at this mark otherwise he's going to be out of focus and the lighting won't be exactly right and that creates like this stiffness you know right yeah and it feels like this movie especially doesn't give a shit about that in the (laughs) in in a a lot of ways where it's just kind of capturing things which is i you know i guessing was pretty revolutionary at the time i think i mean i think there were tenants of this and these were guys so you know like at the beginning of this film Godard dedicates this movie to Monogram, I think it was, uh, a B-picture uh, studio that made films on the fly. And I've, um, one of the areas, there, there's two areas of academic interest that I've always personally held. And um, if I was to pursue my PhD at some point, they, they would either be one of these two subjects. One is film censorship and the other is uh, exploitation cinema, so the cinema of the B-studios. And I think both of those speak to this notion of the cinema of, ad- of adversity. So basically, if you don't have, you know, a modern equivalent, if you don't have a technocrane, you're basically just going to do a handheld shot. And right. I think, you know, what Godard was doing with Breathless was really saying, we, I can make a movie that responds to 
the 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 film noirs that I love, like Howard Hawks uh, or Alfred Hitchcock, um, and do it on my own terms. But more than that, I think you know, like uh, something that I'm. Um, it's funny because I've seen this film three or four times, and the. I think this might be a factor of me getting older and kind of, you know, being uh, more interested in the practice of filmmaking as opposed to the, the, the theory of filmmaking. So one of the things that'll happen at film school is you get introduced to a lot of literature on how to analyze or critique a film. And a lot of that literature, you know, if it's old and um, not contemporary, is, tends to be based on, on either Freudian or Lacanian psychoanalysis which is a really strange thing that the humanities seems to have like hung its hook on because, you know, Freudian or Lacanian psychoanalysis isn't really practiced or talked about much anywhere except in the humanities now, um, <laughs> which is a really strange phenomenon. So when you watch this as a film student, when you watch Godard as a film student, you're sort of thinking about it on those terms, you know, like the, the sort of the breaking of the rules, the boundaries of, of uh, object and subject in the way that, you know, say uh, Belmondo steers, steers at pictures of Humphrey Bogart in the mirror, um, right. the final shot of Jean Seberg um, uh, looking back at us, uh, you know, directly, which echoes something that Francois Truffaut did in The 400 Blows. It, it's, it's, you know, you're kind of thinking about it in those structural terms. And this, this time that I watched it, and I, I really want to get your response to this as well, this time that I watched it, I think because I'm more interested in emotional truths now, that's, that's kind of what I'm looking for in films as a filmmaker and, and as a viewer. The thing that I was really interested in now is I, I didn't care about all his structural innovations like the jump cut or the, you know, the, the sort of um, the way scenes are structured where you don't quite understand what's happening, but you, you feel like you know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing that, you know, like the thing, the reason why Breathless holds up is everyone loves Jean-Paul Belmondo in this film. You know, everyone loves Michel Pocard. He's, he's, he's cool. He's smoking the cigarette. He's got this Humphrey Bogart sort of. Well, this is interesting because I'm not sure. Okay, well, I, um, I wasn't sure if we were supposed to like him um, in, in a certain way because he's an awful person. Um, he's, a, he's a terrible person. And I think, I, I don't know if, like, I, re- I always remembered him as, like, cool as ice. But and he's kind like, of a sociopath, which is... He's a uh, sociopath. He com- <laughs> he's entire. You're, you're 100% correct. He's entirely a sociopath. And he's also incredibly emotionally fragile in this film to the point where he is insecure. Um, you know, he is a manipulator of human beings. And the only person who sees through him is is uh, Jean Seberg. You know, like, it, it, she is the only person that really gets who he is and and i think I, I don't know i mean that's what i felt you know again i've seen this film four times now and it's only on this viewing that i actually was invested in the characters now i do think what godard is doing from a character point of view is still innovative you know like these characters are far more three-dimensional and interesting than we would see in a normal crime film uh, but I'm curious, Ivan, what you as a first time viewer and, and not having to like, you know, not viewing it through the paradigm of uh, of film school, you know, analysis, what you just felt about it on an impulsive level. No, it's, it's, it's a good point. It's an interesting question, because my, my initial takeaway of the movie, once I kind of realized um, that this wasn't like the Maltese Falcon and wasn't like, uh, you know, like a Billy Wilder noir film or whatever. But the, the thing that really struck me about the movie is 
uh, I forget John Seberg's character. Uh, her name's Patricia. Okay, Patricia. Yeah. Um, the thing I found most interesting about her is uh, she's the character I most identified with and found the most interesting because I think that uh, Michelle, the wannabe gangster character, is very transparent. Like, it's very obvious that he has... Um, it's very obvious. You can kind of see right through him in the fact that he's putting on this air of being a person who doesn't care about anything and is too cool for school, but really is very weak and fragile underneath it all. I don't think that's, I don't think it's very deep reading to kind of come up with that. No, but she's a she's a lot more interesting in the sense that it's like, what does she want really? Is she is her like at the end of the movie? Um, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Mm-hmm. And I apologize. But the end of the movie seems to be making the statement that the way she proves her toughness, I want to say, or the way she proves that her own independence is that she's willing to turn in the man that she supposedly was willing to run away with to Italy uh, on a whim. Like she doesn't, mm-hmm. which is what I think, I think is a much more, interest, more interesting character move. Like yeah. the whole movie almost becomes about her um, proving to herself that she doesn't need anybody else, anyone else. And which is really interesting because the movie, you know, it, it, it's about, you know, it starts out with him on the run and shooting somebody and trying to find a, a way to hide out, which isn't really what the movie's about at all. Like all the plot of the movie it, it means nothing. Yeah. Essentially. It, it, like yeah, I mean. it's all for like, you know, and it, which is so funny because it's, it's supposed to be a noir film and noir films are all about the plot. Like everything about a noir is about, the, you know, the this double cross and yeah. the machinations of it all coming together and the big reveal and who's turning on who and all that kind of stuff. And this movie has that stuff, but almost like, uh, like it's going through the motions, but doesn't really care at all about any of that. <laughs> yeah, and really and, kind of only cares about the character stuff. So the fact is you're just kind of in watching it this time around, you're just kind of watching it from a character perspective. That's like the only way I watched this movie this time when I watch it for the first time, because all the, like the, uh, the cinematic stuff, like the jump cuts that you mentioned mean like felt like meant very little to me because I see a jump cut, like in every movie that I watch nowadays, you know, yeah, like exactly. it's not, it's not like any of the form stuff is particularly unique or amazing. And that's just me being jaded from watching, you know, modern movies that are polished and, do kinds of creative stuff like that all the time. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And and the thing is, I mean, the thing that I wanted to sort of touch on about why I think a new filmmaker or a young filmmaker would be interested in this film is is I, I, I would really stress not doing any of the reading before watching this movie. Like, I, I would really, you know, if I was designing a film course now, I think the thing that I would really want to do is to have people watch movies and not read until we've had like two or three conversations about the film because I think the way you watch that where you're just watching it from a story point of view is is the best way to to, to kind of experience this film and it's it's the way that you know remember uh, filmmakers although you know like Godard and Truffaut and uh, Jacques Rivette and Claude Chabrol were all part of this Cahiers du Cinema sort of academic film theory and practice this was an incredibly popular movie and it was an incredibly it was a film that a lot of people saw and responded to at the time you know this is so a, it wasn't like it wasn't like some art house flick that only like five people saw in france right no like, i mean this like put it this way this movie was remade with richard gear in the 1980s <laughs> oh i had no idea really oh yeah check out the trailer it is uh uh, it's re- and in fact, uh, uh, Tarantino, who loves this film and, and is a is a big fan of Godard, I think his his uh, his company, uh, a band of pa- is named after Godard's film, um, a Band of Outsiders. Um, 
uh, he loves the remake. And I think because in the remake, Richard Gere is a big fan of the Silver Surfer, the, the Jack Kirby uh, Marvel character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm and, familiar. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, of course you are. And, uh, <laughs> and so he uses, I think he used a lot of that iconography, I, I think, either in the writing of True Romance or in Rizwa Dogs. And it was like, it was kind of this... The thing about Breathless as well is Breathless is a film that takes on its its American influences and it was so popular that it became the a primary influence of American films later on. So there's this incredible sort of recursive quality to this film mm-hmm. where people it's like watch the uh, what's that the the snake eating itself like the Ouroboros yeah. type thing or or uh, the the Hall of Mirrors you know like uh, right. people saw it and then reflected back on it and then Godard himself kind of took some of those reflections and used it in, in later films as well so this was you know I you know I, I, it sounds like I'm ragging on film school I have I have a deep respect for the the academic critical thinking that I attained from film school but I I I want to say that I think watching this movie just as like, hey, I just want to see what this movie's about and, and am I interested in these characters, you know? And, well, well, and where do I go, you know, like do I enjoy where this film takes me and makes me think about? Well, I think here's, you're going to probably hate me for saying this, but here's, <laughs> here's something I've come to think about movies in general over the past, you know, five years or so, is I've become, a, like in high school, I was obsessed with how movies looked. Like I was obsessed with shots, you know, mm-hmm. um, but now like I don't really care as much about what like movies look like, and uh, I just kind of care whether or not I'm into the story and characters. I'm much more into that now, mm-hmm. and the formality of like, you know, I, I, you know, I, I admitted when we did a the Unbreakable podcast on this episode yeah. that I was obsessed with M Night Shyamalan because like, he had this knack for composition that I thought was amazing. Yeah, and he I've does. kind of got yeah. and I've gotten I've kind of gotten over that. Like I just don't. I don't care about that. As, I, I, I think that's all very important, obviously, cinematography, and I like when things look nice and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, off, I also believe that the uh, most viewers, that's not why they go to see movies, and that's not why movies stick with them. Um, and uh, with this movie, I think it's, I don't know, like I, you're going to probably tell me that this is one of those beautifully shot movies ever made, but I didn't really get that from watching Breathless. Like I got more, I was more interested in the character stuff, especially her, um, Jean Seaborg's character than I was like, like, so I started reading about this movie afterwards Mm -hmm. and like people were talking about that, you know, that final shot, like that tracking shot of him running after being shot is like very famous. Right. Mm -hmm. But when watching it, it didn't really like, I don't know if I really grasped why that shot was so amazing from a visual standpoint. Um, but I kind of got the emotion of why that moment was very interesting. Well, well, see, I think this is this leads into the important conversation. I think that that people forget when when you look at a film from a purely structural point of view, that people forget about the connection between uh, what the way I would kind of break it down is semantic and syntactic analysis. So if you're looking at a sentence structure, and I I, I like to do this with everything I look at because I, I believe like uh, language is a fundamental mode of communication language is our is our basic way of understanding any art form or or academic subject so so the arrival uh, was your favorite movie of last year it, it was <laughs> actually i think you, if you listen to our podcast it ended i up did on number yeah. seven yeah i you liked it pre- a lot yeah 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 anyway yeah. sorry go ahead no 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 yeah. i um and so i think you know the problem is that people watch this from a syntactical point of view which is a structural um, analysis, you know, like the jump cuts, the way the film kind of bounces around. And they often don't take into account the semantical quality, which is the the relationship between what Godard as a storyteller is trying to 
communicate to us via the, the syntactic um, uh, qualities of this film. So, you know, um, the, the jump cuts are interesting. Now, Godard himself will counteract this because he is an outspoken critic of uh, the way in which he will make decisions based on impulse and 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 you know like random film theory like in this in this film there are there are references to many other movies uh obscure films even even the, the you know the the reference to monogram at the beginning or uh there's a reference to bob le flambeur or uh there's a couple of other like really random things uh, like there's a shot where she's looking at him through a, a rolled up poster which uh-huh, is a reference yeah. to a samuel fuller film Oh, okay. uh, which had a similar thing, you know, but, but again, who cares? You know, like, does that really matter? What no, matters- yeah. And, it, and like when you watch a Tarantino film, it doesn't really matter that you haven't seen all the samurai movies that he's watched, you know, exactly. or, the, exactly. or the Kung Fu movies that he's obsessed with. So I, I, I think that we as film fans get obsessed with the, um, like the in jokes. And this, this is going to seem like a really uh, lame stretch, mm-hmm. but I fucking hate when movies do this thing where they'll reference. Well, actually, you do talk about this a lot in your podcast because I know that Matt Kroll doesn't like this either. But like mm-hmm. when characters will make like a statement that's an in joke that only the audience understands but has no bearing on actual yeah. plot or what the characters understand, and like it's basically just meant for people in the theater to be like, hey, I recognize that thing that I saw. Like it's just uh, yeah. that kind of stuff really bugs me and i find that stuff very clever and annoying in movies so um no yeah. and I, I i think you know there's a there's uh as much as i give matt a hard time on the podcast um i think he's very right in that uh that can go it it, it has the potential to alienate half your audience or uh, you know like there's only a very select part of your audience that will actually understand and get that um, and unless you're working specifically in parody or satire, it's 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 very you know it's a very specific thing to do. But my point here is is that to me, watching this film again was what I got out of it was this is a film about Patricia making a decision about whether she wants to live the life that Michelle is offering her, which is um, which is dangerous and risky and you know, for lack of a better term, breathless, mm-hmm. um, or the 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 kind of life that is much more um, uh, structured and ordered, or 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 as you said, her own life. And I think I think that, it's yeah, I think that's what I got from it is it's this idea of her own destiny. Whereas if she chooses the other path, it's Michelle leading her along. She's dependent on the man to yeah. drive her life forward. Um, and and I think it comes through in that there's a sort of uh, digression where she goes to interview a novelist. Um, yeah, I, so I didn't get this stuff at all. So maybe you can explain to me the significance of that sequence. She goes to interview this novelist who's kind of like a dick almost. And he has is he the one that has the famous line that um, uh, men only want women and women only want money? Is that, yeah, exactly, uh, yeah. exactly. Um, and it's played by uh, Jean-Pierre Melville who um, – uh, directed uh, Belmondo in uh, in several. I think you. No, actually no. So I'm thinking of Alan Delon in uh, the, the Samurai later on in his life. Uh, so he's you know a, a very uh, well established at that point crime director. Um, but um, I, to me, the thing that was interesting about that scene was the was the uh, there's a couple of lines where she asks questions of what is your ambition as an author? And he says something on the lines of to be immortal and then to gain immortality and then die. <laughs> and, and to me, that was kind of the crux of 
what she realizes is Michelle's destiny. And, and it's, and it's, she's basically in that scene kind of, and and if you notice as well, structurally uh, later on, it's it's after that scene that we start seeing her doubt Michelle a little more. Yeah. Yeah. There is, there is a change in her at that scene. Okay. So you've already retroactively made the scene make sense for me. Okay. Continue. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but again, that's not something that I, you know, as a, a 20 year old watching this kind of you know, really got, it's kind of something I've, you know, like it took, it took me multiple viewings to kind of feel that way about it. Um, so I, you know, again, watching this film now, I thought this was more the story of, of Patrice, uh, is it Patrice or Patricia? Patricia. Uh, I think it's Patricia, it, yeah. Yeah. Then it was about Michelle, um, which, which I was like, I was quite surprised at kind of thinking about. And, and then the jump cuts, um, really function when I was kind of watching it through that paradigm. There's there's two scenes where there's like a, a big uh, sense of jump cuts, and they're both scenes with Patricia. Uh, one is when she's in the car. I was gonna say the car sequence was a big one. Yeah, and then the, in the apartment as well. Uh, there's a couple uh, in the apartment. The other one that I noticed is when she's sitting opposite uh, her boss uh, at a cafe, and he's okay. describing something uh, I can't remember the exact conversation but the thing was was that the jump cuts what they did was made me drift my attention away from what was being said and to feel the impulse of the moment a little more and so like when she was having that conversation with the boss the thing that I got the thing that I felt was oh she's not really interested in what he's saying she just wants to get out of there and there's this underlying slightly sexual tension between the two that she's not entirely comfortable with Mm. Um, and, and then when she's in the car, you know, like there's this interesting thing, which is we get the jump cuts, um, as Michelle is describing the things that she, he, he finds beautiful about her, but, but they're entire, we're only watching her. We're not seeing him sort of leering at her. We're not seeing him kind of making those comments now. So I, you know, like when I, when I think about the film as her story, those jump cuts take on a different sort of import to me the, the 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 truth of the matter is and this is something that happens at film school as well is that like godard you know came upon these jump cuts because he'd cut the film and it was way too long and so he was like well i'm not going to cut out whole scenes i'm just going to cut out little moments <laughs> within the scene and that's you know and that and people watched it and said that was crazy but now it's the thing that we latch onto and and me as a viewer i've kind of um found a meaning a syntactical meaning that to, connects yeah. to the semantic you know for well, that i mean i kind of love i kind of love mm-hmm. how messy that is where he mm-hmm. you know everyone uh, ascribes a, a higher meaning to the technique but mm-hmm. really it's just a guy who wanted to make his movie shorter which i think mm-hmm. is kind of it's great like, right <laughs> it's, it's kind of great isn't it like i don't know it's like it's like art in a nutshell right like you can't you can't yeah. totally uh you can't explain why things work sometimes, but they sometimes things just do, and you know stuff comes together. I've I've always talked about the the magic of how a good movie is made because I don't you know obviously no one sets out to make a bad movie, mm-hmm. and you know you usually get very talented most of the time, especially in big Hollywood movies. Everyone who's working on it's pretty damn talented. It's not like people lack talent. It's just stuff has to come together in the right combination. For it and all to work it, out, it's alchemy, isn't it? Yeah, it's totally <laughs> alchemy because yeah. you could put the exact same, you know, cast and crew together on a different movie, and it would be horrible after they've made something amazing. So I think that that kind of thing is very interesting about movie making. We try to we try to define like limits, or we try to make rules for what make good movies, and then we end up 
you know, screwing ourselves because of that, because there is nothing that can really define what makes something great. It just happens to be great. So, yeah. Well, it requires, uh, you know, I think um, my uh, a professor I worked with, Aaron Mannion Park, who um, taught Korean cinema, I think he used to tell, and I'm not sure where this theory came from or whether it was just something he believed in, but he used to talk to us a lot about it doesn't, and I think the theory is called the death of the author, um, where it doesn't matter what the author intended. What matters is the way in which it's received by mm -hmm. you, the audience, and whether you can critically prove your, you know, prove your um, your belief in that. Um, and so, you know, like I like that theory because it it basically, you know, auteur theory kind of gives us the sense that the author, the the author, the auteur, the director is entirely in command of the way the audience receives and, and perceives that film. But the death of the author kind of says, no, it's actually a 50-50 relationship. And it's not just about what the author intended, which in this case was just to shorten his movie up, but it's also about the way in which I receive it and whether that connects for me. So it's, you know, like, I like that the, you know, there's this sort of 50-50 relationship. And, you know, the thing is, is that, um, the reason why that's important is that films can be reinterpreted over time, mm -hmm. uh, depending on the cultural context that that they're viewed within. And you know, a film like Breathless might have very little cultural context now, um, but it may do for some whatever reason in many years. I know uh, a film right now I think is a, a Face in the Crowd, a Frank Frank Capra movie, which is about a politician who or a guy, an ordinary guy who suddenly becomes the president of the United States. Um, that movie, which wasn't very, you know, relevant talked about. Relevant now, it's very yeah, relevant, yeah. It's very relevant now, and it becomes a different meaning, you know? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, again, talking about this alchemy of movie making. So this actor who plays Michel, I'm going to screw up his name. Um, Jean-Paul uh, Belmondo? Jean-Paul Belmondo. Um, mm. He is, I, he, the way he looks, and uh, he is exaggeratedly ugly. Like, it, it's, um... <laughs> He, uh, and I, I know that sounds mean, but like not like ugly, like he's hideous to look at. He's like all his features are too big. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really important for this character. And I don't know if this was the intention of the director when making this movie, but if a guy's trying to be Humphrey Bogart, but is like too exaggerated to be Humphrey Bogart, it's like, it, it's almost like he's, um, it, it's almost like he's a cartoon of what a noir character should be. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's really important for the movie. Like if you have a really handsome guy who's mm -hmm. if, in the film, it doesn't work, you know, it, it doesn't make as much sense. He, he, he doesn't have uh, the right to be as um, fragile of a character deep down if he's a really good looking guy, you know? So um, I think it's interesting. And, and then on the, on the converse, I think she's beautiful. Right. Um, and I think she has to be beautiful. Um, she for the is movie to work. Yeah, she's incredibly beautiful. I think I think the quality that you're talking about is uh, something my wife always talks about a little bit, which is that there's this like beautiful, ugly thing. Yeah, that she... it's yeah. Like Angelina Jolie is just all her features are just big enough to be beautiful, but if her lips are any bigger, she's a she's a monster. You right, know? right. <laughs> but it's also you know like the thing is, and we're getting into like um, more of a tabloid discussion, I guess. But 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 I like it because it's about. I think Belmondo is sexy as a human being in this scene because it, it doesn't have to do with his features or the way he looks. It's the way he carries himself. And I and think he always has a cigarette in his mouth at all times. And, well, yeah, um, he looks yeah. cool. But it's it's also like his confidence, his swagger, his, you know, like, 
it, it's it's all of those things in play. And and you know, like Jean Seberg, um, Jean Seberg. Sorry, I keep uh, mispronouncing her name. Um, wasn't considered the great beauty of her time. You know, she wasn't, but she is very very attractive. Um, and it, you know, she was considered slightly, I would say, probably slightly mousy and slightly small. Huh. But this but this film does something with her where we. And again, I think that's the, the the reading of the film that I have, which is um, which has to do with that the film is her decision, and it's about looking past the way she looks and what's going on behind her eyes. The reason she's attractive is we're trying to figure out what's going on in her head, and that's huh. much more attractive than someone who's just externally beautifully but beautiful, but we don't care about. Gotcha. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I think that right away you kind of are endeared to her as an audience because she's not vapid. She's clearly smart from the start of the movie, um, yeah. which is which I think is really important. Uh, the one thing I think that this movie, uh, you know, one thing I did notice uh, from a cultural perspective is how influential this idea of like two young lovers rebelling against authority kind of thing, like mm-hmm. tropes that you see in like Badlands or yeah. um, um, what's the uh, Tarantino movie that direct? Uh, true Romance. By- True, but there's another one I'm trying to think that's not directed by Tarantino, but yeah. written by Tarantino. Um, True Romance. That's the one that's is, directed is that by... Is that um, what I'm thinking of right now? But I'm thinking of uh, Natural Christian Born Killers. Sl- oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Apologies. Um, um, yeah. So like, uh, yeah, that, that kind of stuff where it's like hip to be anti-establishment. Um, and I, I read this book. I don't know if you ever read the book Youth and Revolt. Um, no, I haven't. Uh, but in that, and I didn't get the illusion at the time, but in that book, the main character uh, that he's the main character is obsessed with a girl and the girl is obsessed with the fictional character of Belmondo. Like she's always talking about him right. as like the guy that she loves more than anything or is like most attracted to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, like, you know, it's all coming together now that I finally have seen this uh, in the sense that I kind of get what that character was talking about. So I think, it, I think, and they came later on, but this is all kind of, uh, this all coalesces in the true story of the Starkweather murders, I think it was, where there were two young people who went on the, on the lamb and, you know, like, we're killing people. Or, or the, a, even the Bonnie and Clyde. Wait, shoot. I'm trying to think. Uh, is there... Oh, I'm thinking of a totally different movie. I'm thinking of The Snowtown Murders. Have you seen that movie? The Australian film. It's on my list. I, I hear very good things about it. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I couldn't get through it, so let me know. Oh, really? The, well, it's the director re- went on to Assassin's Creed, right? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> come on, man. I mean, he's obviously made his way up the world. No, I mean, um, no, I, it's a very slowly paced movie, so you just got to right. be in the mood for that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. The thing about that I like about this film is I wouldn't argue, you know, it's not fast paced, um, mm-hmm. but I wasn't necessarily totally bored while watching either, which I thought I was going to be. So uh, I think I it, my, because I, it's only like 90 some odd minutes, which I think really helps, you know, like it's, yeah. it's good that it's not two and a half hours long. So, and also I think it has an energy to it. That's kind of undeniable even today. Like I did find it kind of staccato and I was trying to catch up at all times and things were moving and happening. And I, and I didn't, I never, you know, like, uh, I mean, Truffaut's film, The 400 Blows, uh, which came out the year or maybe the year or the two years before this, uh, which really put the, the Cahiers guys on the map, um, I, felt as a, I feel as a much more formal exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a film that I, I love as a formal thing, but, but you know, I'm not as enamored by. Whereas when I watched this this time, I was like, oh, man, this movie, this movie really moves, you know? Like, it's got, a, it's got a feeling to it that kind of, like, 
keeps it going that 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 keeps me engaged and that never made me want to switch it off yeah totally i mean like the opening sequence um you know where he like steals a car and there's a gun inside the uh the glove compartment and he shoots the guy i'm like whoa this has happened in the first like eight minutes of this movie yeah yeah, yeah. like all this happens which is which is pretty crazy um one thing i will say is that from like Again, I was talking about how I don't think this movie really cares about the machinations of like its thriller plot elements. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, the way it shoots, it's like so uh, quote unquote action sequences. I don't think it really cares that. Like I don't think they're supposed to be like thrilling action sequences. Do you agree no. with that, or am I oh, misreading that? No, no, completely. I think I think they're they're really like so that first action, se- you know, first scene that you're talking about where he shoots the police officer is kind of told in this staccato, weird close-ups, and the scene geography is very strange. Like, you know, totally, the cop, yeah. the cop yeah. comes up behind, and then he's like, and then Belmondo is f- facing the in the opposite direction, so the screen direction is all crazy. And in a way, it looks kind of badly made, you know? But then there's yeah. this... <laughs> Agreed, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, but, it's, <laughs> but it's kind of... But the amazing thing about it is, is that there's this sort of furious energy and pace to the film that never lets you stop and and linger on that. And and then the but then the weird thing about it is, and this is this is a, a thing that I, the thing that I remembered most about this film when I watched it, uh, you know, as a young man, was the um, the scene in the bedroom uh, that lasts I think 20, 30 minutes um, or whatever. Where basically they 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 talk about what they want you know Michelle sort of tries to get in touch with someone who owes him some money but then they go into like discussions about William Faulkner and mm-hmm. um and then they're bouncing back and forth and and it's a there's a similar scene in uh, Vivre Savri um My Life to Live uh where Anna Karenina is doing the same it has this long um uh coffee table conversation and I think that's the that's the um, Godard the philosopher basically allowing us to pause in the middle of this film which is so you know again as the title suggests breathless um to have like an intimate moment that is philosophically grounded in who these characters are um you know it's 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 so so what's weird about it is is i think a lesser filmmaker who wasn't as in control or or even as well versed in the effect of the cinematic language would make you feel like that's those scenes were badly made. But because there's so much great innovations in this film, you forgive it. And again, because there's, there's such a this sort of furious pace to this movie as well, I uh-huh. tend to like just gloss over that and just go, well, this is the film that this director wanted to make. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, there's something pretty punk rock about that, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, like, exactly. like I don't, I don't care that this action sequence isn't staged properly and the geography isn't clear. Like that's not what I care about, you know, when I'm making this movie, you know, so I, you know, I'm just going to move on to the next thing because I just need this to happen so I can get somewhere else. So I think that's kind of cool. And I think that we obsess a lot when making movies about certain things that it doesn't seem like uh, Godard is actually, you know, cares about all that much, you know? But then at the same time, there's that scene where he goes into like the airline teller or something Uh like that, which is a single take that lasts, you know, like four minutes or something like that, that, you know, travels through the entire length of that, of that office space. Oh yeah. yeah. It's like, he's in a, it's a, it's like a travel agency, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause cause I think it's intimated that Michelle was a a former steward on uh, Air France or something like that at some point. Although, you know, who cares? It doesn't matter. But, but that scene, (laughs) 
you know, like it has kind of all the formality of the great oneers that we would talk about, you know, with regards to Spielberg or something like that, you know, like it has that kind of, so it's clear that this guy, this is a guy who knows and understands the language of cinema. He's just kind of using his own punctuation and his own vernacular um, here. Now, maybe I'm giving too much import for like, again, things that he was just like, I'm just close, you know, I just got to close the scene out or make the film shorter or, you know, I don't have enough time to like, you know, get the scene geography right. So I'm just going to just shoot two shots and you're done. Maybe that's <laughs> well, the case. Maybe, maybe, but I think that kind of goes into your earlier theory. That doesn't really matter. I mean, you've taken it, you know, you, you interpret it as you want, you know, and it doesn't exactly. really matter what his intention was. Um, cool. Um, do you, I mean, I don't want to, you know, take up too much of your time, so I'll try to close this out soon. But my, my other my, my kind of last question for you is, not in relation to Breathless, but are there movies that you, that are often, as you said earlier in the podcast, prescribed to film students that you just don't think are good movies? Like you huh. objectively don't, you you know, don't think you find to be pretentious and uh, um, don't work for you? Or do you kind of see merit in all of them, even if you don't like really latch onto them? Like 400 Blows, you obviously said you didn't, you didn't really connect with it on a deeper emotional mm-hmm. level, but you respect the you can at least respect the craft of making it, you know? So is there, are there any movies that you would just throw out of your film school syllabus that you wouldn't have people watch? That's a really, really good question. Actually, Ivan, I like, it's it's one that's actually kind of got me stumped because I think fundamentally, I think uh, as a, as a film viewer who catalogs films in his own brain, I tend to throw away the movies that I think are bad movies um, <laughs> for the sake of not watching them. Um, and I tend to just hold on to and obsess about the films that I actually enjoy. I know, look, um, there are um, there are films that uh, are prescribed in film theory, uh, particularly around the topic of feminism um, that are often depicted to be anti-structuralist in a way that um in a way that addresses uh masculinity in cinema versus femininity in cinema and i know as a personal uh response uh there's one film in particular uh, a film called variety by betty gordon um that i generally didn't enjoy but I do remember, you know, taking the lessons that were learned. And again, that might just be because I was kind of prescribed the reading and the, the understanding of the syllabus beforehand. I would, I, look, I, when you started that question, I thought you were going to ask me the films that, that, I, that I actually genuinely just love on a fundamental level without the film okay, well, knowledge. You know, what, what are the, but I think your those? question is a better one. I think, I think what you asked me is actually a better question. Well, I think, <laughs> well, the reason I think that's an interesting thing is... Um, I think that if you're an intellectual film viewer, I don't think that there are any films that don't have any merit, you know, for some, you know, or at least mm-hmm. movies uh, that you're going to be watching in film school. You can at least appreciate some aspects of them that inform, you know, even if you don't love the movie, it will inform some aspects of, of what you like and your, your yeah. cinematic language. And I, I just was, I'm curious to see if there are movies that don't fall into that category, but I don't know if that's necessarily fair because obviously there's merit to everything if it's you know being discussed 
you know, on a certain level. So <laughs> I remember, I, wanna... I remember as a critic, cause I was a, a film critic in New Zealand for a little while for a couple of magazines. I remember the movie that I really didn't like on first viewing and it's not a film school movie, but was uh, uh, Tony Scott's man on fire with Denzel Washington. <laughs> I really don't like that movie either, but uh, I don't know if you've grown to like that movie. <laughs> I have, I've never watched it again, but I remember that movie leaving just a, it's one of the few films that left a really bad taste in my mouth. Well, I don't like, uh, and I'm getting on a huge digression. I really don't like movies that celebrate like, yeah, like, but, but in a way that like, it's like we're, we as the audience are supposed to really enjoy how awful they're being like, um, and you know, it's funny, uh, Mel Gibson does this a lot in all his movies. Yeah. (laughs) Axel Ridge is a really, is a really complicated film to, to review in that context. Um, which is a movie I'm not necessarily looking forward to watching based on my experience with his other <laughs> films. Uh, so, you know, it, it'll be interesting. I, 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 li- I like Mel Gibson as a filmmaker. I think Apocalypto. Uh, you know what I like about Mel Gibson? I know this is a digression. Is, uh, I love that he, he's, he's, uh, he respects the language with which people were speaking in. I, and oh, it's a really yeah. small thing, but like <laughs> he does. so it, few it, filmmakers it, do that. Yeah, that, like yeah. an apocalypse where they're not just people speaking with British accents. Yeah, no, it, yeah. it's, I, I mean, why? I mean, he's obviously an intense filmmaker that captures the intensity. Um, I haven't seen Braveheart in a really long time, but I, I, I imagine those battle sequences are still very intense and hold up. So, yeah. yeah. But, um, but if we were to do the flip side, I know, you know, Citizen, for me personally as a film viewer, uh, I know you were talking earlier about you. You know when you were talking about Unbreakable, you were interested in the way Shyamalan does cinematography and his and his precision. I I am a person who does love. Fe- I, I love the feeling of being in the hands of a filmmaker who is in complete control of not only the 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 the, the, uh, the content of the scene, but the mise en scene as well. The 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 structure of the film. Right. I I love the feeling of of a filmmaker who turns the camera at exactly the right moment. Right. For the, for the I, I think there's a certain, um, and it, there's a certain like technical and visceral joy when that stuff happens, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and it's hard to explain. I, and I think that, uh, Christopher Nolan is a is a good example of a mainstream filmmaker that some that gets that right, and uh, mm-hmm. even though his movies are very flawed, a lot of them, uh, you still really respect the craft in certain sequences that just kind of blow you away. So yeah. the other filmmaker contemporary is uh, is uh, David Fincher. I think David Fincher yeah. is is precise on a level that is uh, kind of scary at times, but. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, imagine asking for 99 takes of something. <laughs> exactly. Um, I always say the the Grip and Electric crew on uh, the first few episodes of House of Cards that he directed deserve an award because they, that the, the movement in that film is just so precise and, and elegant that it's kind of scary. But I was going to say, you know, like everyone's, I think you mentioned that you were going to talk about Citizen Kane at some point. And, and Citizen Kane gets ragged on a lot because it is the film school movie. Yeah, it's a cliche almost about yeah. how it's the film school movie. Yeah. Um, but it really is an example of a perfect synergy between a filmmaker who is who seems to understand the power of the visual language in connection to the story that he is telling Mm -hmm. and i and i find that exhilarating every time i watch it on the flip side of that uh wells made a film towards the very end of his career which looks much more like a godard film uh, a film a documentary called if for fake which i think is astonishing for the exact same reason it is a it is a perfect synergy between um form and content um and and in in a way that is you know like it isn't necessarily about the the precision of his camera moves or the or the way in which a scene is cut and executed or the way a line is delivered or anything like that it's about 
finding the right balance between the structure of the sentence and the content of the sentence. And, and so, you know, like, uh, I, I would like to think that, that if, if you're going to film school, your film school professors or whoever you're dealing with should encourage you to enjoy, uh, you know, like for me, it's, encourage you to enjoy um, Mad Max Fury Road as much as you enjoy uh, Breathless. Or, right. Yeah. I, I don't think we have to feel guilty for liking movies that are just entertaining. Like, we don't have to feel bad about that. Um, no, not at all. And I think that's... Uh, I think that's a really uh, interesting distinction because I think a lot of pretentious like film fans will, will always look down on certain people for liking certain things, and I think that's kind of at a base level it's wrong because we as humans don't always want to watch the type same type of things. We want to you know have different feelings and experiences when we watch movies and TV. So I think that that's a very snotty thing to do. <laughs> so, exactly, and I, uh, I and to be fair, I make a lot of fun of my co-hosts for liking certain movies, but he's you know we like what we like. Um, I think my only hesitation there is I think there is a tendency with um, mainstream films that don't have um, necessarily a critical or philosophical underpinning to kind of deaden our intellectual capacity and and and, and I, I I do I really you know as a father and you know as well I I worry about the diet of films that people consume that that don't encourage you to think critically about what's happening. Oh, that, to- that's yeah, my opinion, I mean, totally. Know. And I, I try to, it's, it's funny, I, I, I very, uh, because my time is so limited, I try to very much self-select what I watch. Like, I'm very, very uh, precious about the movies that I choose to watch. So um, I try to avoid consuming that kind of stuff myself. But, you know. Yeah, you but know, you know, sometimes you need a a chicken McNugget, as we yeah. as we said on our on one of yeah. Our I haven't listened recently. to that episode yet, but that yeah. was uh, in regards to Triple X, Triple X. Yeah, uh, on, our, we, on our podcast, we try to like balance out the 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 films that I think are good for you versus the films that I think sometimes you want. Exactly. There you yeah. go. Um, well, this has been very interesting for me. I, I think that if the thesis of this podcast, this reviewed podcast, is is this a movie? That holds up. I guess my question going into it was, um, is is Breathless only remembered because of the things it did differently? Like, you know, it pushed uh, the cinematographer used a wheelchair instead of a dolly and stuff like that. Or is it actually hold up beyond those like conventions of form? And I think that in discussing this with you, my conclusion is that, yes, it does hold up beyond the fact that 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 it used jump cuts for the first time or something like that. So and I think that's really an important distinction, Uh, unlike, you know, my earlier statement about I don't think Birth of a Nation holds up beyond any of other than the important first that it did. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, from your point of view, would you watch this and recommend it to people or? Yeah, well, I think that I don't know if you do this thing, but don't you like if you're like, so I, I, people know I like movies a lot. And anytime I'm in a social setting, they're like, oh, you like movies. What should I watch? And I, yeah. I have the hardest time <laughs> coming up with anything for people to watch because I have to like think about the person I'm talking to. And like, like I don't want to recommend, like, I think Moonlight's a very good movie. I don't want to recommend, I don't think Moonlight, which, you know, just won Best Picture. I don't think that, I don't think you can recommend that movie to everyone. I just don't think you can. So, right. um, um, you know, I, I can't recommend my, my dad's not going to like that movie. He's just not. So. Yeah, right, right. Um, no, I, I, we, we have that uh, all the time because my wife doesn't enjoy delving into cinema history, you know, and, she, and it's not because 
she's not intellectually engaged. She's a very, very, very smart woman, much smarter than I am, to be honest with you. Uh, but it's just that her requirements for films are very different to mine. Oh, to- and- totally. Like I got, I got through Nef- I got the you know uh, Park Chan Wook's The Handmaiden through Netflix a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And I was sitting down to. I was like, oh, I really wanted to watch this to my wife, and she's like, well, what, what's it like? I'm like, well, it's a two and a half hour Korean film. She's like, oh boy, <laughs> like she like automatically like it's like you know she's already getting herself into something she's probably you know never going to make herself out of. But I am I, I, um, I and but she's far more intelligent than I am. She you know she has a real job and all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> what's I'll, I'll, what's what's exciting though is sometimes when you and what I hope sometimes we do, and you know, maybe the object uh, objective of the reviewed podcast is that you introduce people to things that they wouldn't have thought they would have liked, mm-hmm. but, but they do, you know, like they're suddenly exposed to something that they are like, huh, I really didn't think. So for example, Handmaiden, uh, we just did on, uh, on our podcast, which actually was just released today. Oh, should I um, listen to that episode yet? I'm excited uh, to listen. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know when when we said to Matt, you know, we're doing The Handmaiden, um, he was like, two-hour Korean movie, oh boy. But he absolutely loved it. And, you know, like, it, it got is, him... Ex- I don't know, I haven't, I haven't heard your reaction, obviously, but I thought that movie was so good. And if I could rewrite my top 10, I would, because I think it's amazing. So. <laughs> it, it would have made my uh, top 10 differently. Um, uh, I actually have some problems with it, but they're very minor problems. I have problems, too. Yeah, and yeah, I don't yeah. want to get, make this about a. Uh, I don't want to make it a Park Chan Wook yeah. podcast because I, yeah. I think that sometimes he doesn't know when to pull back. Like I think he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't get the. He doesn't get when he crosses the line between this is a parody of what it needs oh. to be. But uh, I don't know. Uh, I found that the the structure of that movie is so compelling. I, I, I was I, I, every twist in that movie got me, and it was I thought it was incredibly clever and well implemented. So yeah. Anywho, um, I don't want to bother you too much longer. I, um, I, I guess I'll let you go. Hopefully, I can have you back on to discuss another kind of classic movie sometime in the future if you'd be willing. Oh, I would. Lo- I would love to. Uh, if there's anything you've known about me, having not met me, is I can talk your ear off about movies uh, at any time. So <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to do that. Awesome, man. Well, well, thanks so much again. Um, if you want to check out She Hears podcast, it's the only podcast um, <laughs> uh, uh, about movies. It's only movie pod on Twitter. Um, and, uh, I believe you can, um, what's, what do you, you actually have a web, web address, yeah, we're, right? Yeah, uh, onlymoviepodcast.com. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod and, uh, we have a Facebook page where we, uh, talk as well. And yeah, we, our podcast is slightly different to yours, which is that we review, uh, contemporary films, but we do dip back into a back catalog and people will send us requests and we'll... And, we'll, and one reason I would suggest people check out your podcast is um, I think that you and Matt have a very good um, balance of... Um, <laughs> like, well, I mean, you're, 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 I mean, I think you both have different tastes and um, I, it's funny, um, usually when I listen to a movie podcast, I usually only agree with one of the reviewers consistently, but I'm, I feel like I'm bouncing back and forth every time I listen to your podcast, which I think is a good thing. So um. I'm very, I'm very happy. Matt, uh, Matt sends his regards, by the way, and asks why you didn't ask him his thoughts about breathless, but he, he admits <laughs> well, he I hadn't mean, seen we're it. Gonna have a, uh, we're going to have a five hour discussion of the Marvel cinematic universe that uh, we can talk about. Uh, which oh, will be great. He will so. talk your ear off on that. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I appreciate, thank you so much for your time and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. I hope to do it soon. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. 